This fall, we're in a series called The Gospel of Jesus. We believe the gospel presents a compelling case 
for what Jesus' early followers believed. Jesus fulfilled God's promise to redeem His creation and make all things new. We believe the gospel of Jesus makes the most sense in explaining the meaning and purpose of life and our part in it. Why did Jesus speak in parables and not give us more information about everything? Well, here we are in the Gospel of Jesus series, and we're asking the question, why did Jesus speak in parables? Why did Jesus speak in parables? Uh, A second question related to it, we'll get to later this morning, and that would be, why didn't Jesus give us more information about everything? Why didn't Jesus give us more information about everything? But we start with this question, why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, we all love stories, don't we? We all love stories, especially when they mean something or teach something. Uh, They inspire something or they celebrate something. We love stories that go somewhere and take us with them. We love stories that do something in us so that we can authentically say, you know, I'm better for having heard that story. Uh, I'm either more appreciative. I've been reminded that life is a gift. Uh, I've been able to laugh. I've been able to cry. I've been in touch with my heart and in touch with my mind. I've been inspired. I've been humbled. We all love stories. Uh, We read them, we listen to them, we sing them, we watch them in plays and in film. Uh, We love stories told simply by pictures. I so appreciate artists and uh, illustrators who tell us stories simply with images and pictures. Uh, Have you ever read a children's book that didn't have pictures in it? A children's book wouldn't be half as effective if if it didn't have uh, illustrations in it. I think of Peter Rabbit. I think of uh, The Wind in the Willows. Uh, some of the classics, uh, the, the uh, Winnie the Pooh stories. Uh, a, a book came out this week uh, by Natalie Portman and uh, Jana Mattia uh, called Fables. And uh, Natalie Portman has taken several fables and, and freshened them up. And uh, Jana Mattia did a brilliant job creating these beautiful illustrations. And not just beautiful aesthetically, but they compellingly uh, advance the story. They capture your imagination to tell the story. And so uh, we like stories, whether fiction or nonfiction. What's better than hearing a child say, tell me a story, read me a story? This is one of the most fun things about being in a family or in a friendship, uh, about being a, a father or a mother or a grandparent, is that when a child says, tell me a story or read me a story, or when you simply volunteer a story, uh, it pulls everybody together. When you tell stories about yourself or tell stories about uh, the people in the room, Uh, As much as kids squirm and roll their eyes when you tell stories about them, they love it, right? You're remembering their life in a way that they can then appropriate their own life because you were too little to remember it when something happened, let's say. Well, stories are simply the way we share and compare life experiences. And that can get competitive, uh, comparative. uh, You know, can you top this sorts of things? Sometimes you have, especially guys get together and they want to outdo each other with stories. But really, in the best circumstances, as we tell stories, uh, people get inspired to tell stories as well. And so rather than competing and comparing stories, we're building a, a, a wonderful catalog of shared experiences in life that really bring us together, help us to enter into each other's lives in a meaningful way. And so these are the tell-me-your-story occasions. Tell me your story. I, I love hearing people's stories. And one of my favorite things is to ask somebody, tell me your story. Not as a ploy uh, strategy, but just because I'm curious, I want to know who are you? What has shaped you? 
And, and inevitably, when I hear somebody tell their story, it moves me deeply. It, it, it helps me have empathy for them, helps me relate to them, uh, helps me feel connected to them. We have all had that experience. <clears throat> so the first, um, oh, let me say one more thing. Some stories use a formula telling us what kind of story to expect. We're all familiar with this. Once upon a time. Uh, once upon a time. That, that sort of uh, opening tells us a story's on the way. In the beginning. Uh, here's another uh, <laughs> a formula for telling a story. A guy walks into a bar. And you can, you, can, you can swap out guy for anything. A, a monkey walks into a bar. A bear walks into a bar. And you know you're going to hear a, a silly, funny story, a joke. How about this one? A priest, a rabbi, and a minister. And wherever that goes, you know it's going to be interesting and funny. So here's, here's uh, the first point of the morning. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Jesus' parables are short, focused narratives making a spiritual point. Jesus' parables are short, focused narratives making a spiritual point. Like a joke or any other kind of story, they, they efficiently and effectively bring a lot of data together uh, to make a point. This is why a well-told story, uh, a story that's been honed over years of telling it, not necessarily embellished, but just edited, all of a sudden you realize, wow, that's a, that drew me in. So Jesus' parables are short, focused narratives making a spiritual point. Uh, Jesus' 46 parables were memorable ways he talked about his kingdom mission. Uh, he, had, he had lots of prose in there, uh, P-R-O-S-E. <laughs> the, the four Gospels give us all kinds of prose, all kinds of narrative of Jesus. But uh, his miracles were, were visual stories, and his parables were stories that people could listen to and connect with in a powerful way. And so, uh, for example, uh, a parable could be the kingdom of heaven is like, it starts out as a simile, uh, is like a man, a king, a seed, leaven, treasure, a net, a coin, a kid, a young man who leaves home, dissatisfied with home, rebellious, antagonistic toward his father, full of himself, but really pretty empty, demanding his inheritance, he leaves home in a huff, he goes to the faraway land, wherever that is, and he misspends his time and his money and his energies in, in, in dissolution. Eventually, he loses everything, squanders his, his inheritance, and now he's feeding pigs. The picture, of course, Jesus telling this is that a Jewish kid is now feeding pigs. And he comes to his senses and says, you know, gosh, my dad's servants eat better than this because nobody was even letting me eat the pig's food. So he uh, resigns that he will go home, uh, apologize to his father, confess his foolishness, and just hope that his dad will take him on as a servant. And of course, as he approaches home, his father sees him. Now it's called the parable of the prodigal son, but really we could call it the parable of the waiting father. That's what a, a famous theologian, a German theologian, Helmut Tulica, uh, wrote a wonderful uh, book about, a monograph about this parable, and he called it the, the waiting father. And so as the young man is rehearsing his speech, Dad, I've, I've disappointed you, I've, et cetera, et cetera, the dad simply puts his arms around him and says, my son who was lost is now found. And he calls his servants to create a feast to celebrate the arrival of his son. His, his son is speechless now because he's been saying, Dad, if I could only be a servant in your household, but he's received as a son, loved by his father. 
Now, there's a subplot here, as you all know, if you've read or heard the parable. <clears throat> the older son is, is miffed, offended, angry, upset that this good-for-nothing young man squandering his inheritance now gets a party thrown in his honor. And he complains to the father. And the father says, well, why are you upset? And he says, well, I, I, I've been here all this time. I've done everything right. And you've never offered to throw a feast for me and my friends. Well, son, it's, it's been there all along for you. You could have had a feast anytime you wanted to. But the main plot is that what was lost is now, is now found. The power of a parable. And so Jesus gave the people a portable parable library. A portable parable library. A collection of stories that they could easily remember, call to mind, and use as a way to process their experience of life. To connect with what God was doing in, in announcing, proclaiming, and demonstrating His kingdom. Well, how many of these parables do you know? How many come to mind? Probably more than you think. In fact, if we could get everybody together in a room and try to create 46 parables, I bet we could do it. I bet even if somebody said, there's this one about, and whatever it was about, somebody else would say, yes, and this, and that. And this is one of the fun things about being friends with people for a long time, let's say, in a family or a network of, of friends, that if you're trying to remember a story, somebody can often supply details to build out the story so you all remember it together. So Jesus has this portable parable library he's bequeathed to people, in fact, including us. And I bet there's lots of parables that you would recognize if you heard somebody start it off. And you go, oh yeah, that's right. So all of them tell us something about God, about his kingdom, and ultimately about ourselves. A parable is about God, revealing things that we otherwise wouldn't know about him, revealing things we wouldn't otherwise know about his kingdom, and probably, possibly, revealing things we wouldn't know about us, whether it's his love for us, our desperate need for his forgiveness and grace. That would resonate with things we already know about ourselves. We all feel that the life we want to live is just out of reach, that we don't have what it takes. And through bluff and bravado or our best efforts, we try to make a life out of all these pieces that that we see are available to build a life. And yet it never seems to quite come together. But what we find out from God is that He is the one who made us uh, to yearn for that. And He's the one who can help us experience that. Very, very powerful. That these, that these parables tell us something about God, His kingdom, and ourselves. They make us think. They make us reflect. Uh, they make us wonder. Sometimes they make us weep. Sometimes they make us laugh. They cause us to imagine. And they cause us and help us connect with the Father. In fact, with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, and they help us connect to our own heart and to the hearts of God and other people. So these parables are, are very, very powerful. Uh, they make us um, yearn for more. Tell me more, like the kids saying, tell me another story. Read me another story. And so we see that 45 of these parables are recorded in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A synoptic just meaning synopsis, that it's a gathering together of stories. So we see Mark and Matthew and Luke have a lot of overlapping uh, content. Uh, the theory is that Mark was the first uh, gospel written, it's the shortest, it, it's, it very much moves you along. And then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then Jesus did this, 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 and this, this. Matthew uh, adds a birth narrative and more data, more parables. Uh, Luke, likewise, uh, gives us a birth, a birth account. Uh, another genealogy like, like Matthew gives us, and much more data. And what about John? There's four Gospels. Why is John different than the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? 
Well, John, uh, the youngest of the disciples and the longest lived of the disciples, wrote his gospel last. My hunch is that by the time he came to write his gospel, having seen the content floating around attributed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he said, well, how about if I put in some stuff that they haven't covered? So we really don't see any parables in John. We see some similes that you could say, I guess that's a parable, maybe one in John. So 46 parables of Jesus, 45 for sure in the synoptics. Maybe we're seeing one uh, or so in John. But pretty much what we see in John uh, would be analogies and similes. You know, a simile uh, is something that is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. It starts as a simile. Um, But what makes a simile or a metaphor or an analogy move into a status as a parable? A, A narrative. A narrative. A simile can just make a point. This is like that. Uh, An analogy likewise, comparing two things, contrasting two things, a metaphor. This is what it is. But you add a narrative to it, and all of a sudden you have a story with a plot. That's what makes a story significant. A story uh, is not really truly a story until it has a plot. Uh, E.M. Forster, uh, in in his great, great work on the novel, aspects of the novel, says... Um, a story would be the queen died. But a plot added to that story would be the queen died and the king died of grief. And all of a sudden our hearts are engaged. It's like, oh no. And, and there's volumes in there. The queen, what would she like that if her death caused the, the king to die of grief? Oh my gosh, what a marriage, what a relationship, what a woman. What a man of deep feeling. So you see where this goes. So John has said, okay, there's all these parables there. There are these mini stories. And he has his own analogies and similes about what Jesus did and what Jesus said. So I'm thinking, my hunch is that probably because that's the case, he gives us additional information not covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. For example, uh, he tells us about the calling of Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. uh, Turning water to wine at the wedding in Cana. We get that from John. The interview with Nicodemus, we wouldn't know it, but for John's gospel. The woman at the well in Samaria, John tells us that story. The healing of a crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, right there in the middle of Jerusalem. Uh, The healing of a man who was born blind at the pool of Siloam, at the other end of the water source, outside the city. Uh, The rescue of an adulterous woman from being stoned for adultery. Uh, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. That's, that's John telling us about Jesus. The raising of Lazarus in, in Bethany. Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And he, he says, Lazarus, come forth after three days in the grave. We only know about that because of John. Washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. Then that long extended discourse, verses, uh, chapters 13 to 17 in John's Gospel, give us all this data, all this conversation with Jesus and the apostles that we wouldn't have otherwise. And then finally, the conversation following the resurrection with Thomas, doubting Thomas. It's, it's Jesus confronting Thomas with his doubt uh, that we know about because of John. So John gives us content uh, that's parable-like, and maybe there's one out of you know, chapter 10 of John. You can say, okay, that's a parable. So out of these 46 parables, 45 of them come out of the synoptics. Maybe one uh, comes out of John. But all of Jesus' parables and miracles are essential aspects of his ministry. These miracles are visual 
stories, healings, transformation, uh, exorcisms, uh, amazing things, uh, multiplying loaves and fish. And then the parables are told stories and stories you can hear. So both of these together, these parables and these miracles, are super important aspects of Jesus' ministry. Now again, we have lots of narrative in there, lots of teaching, um, other situations describing Jesus' work. But these parables and miracles are absolutely imperatively important. Why? Because he's the way, the truth, and the life, telling us the truth about the kingdom of God and the life that we were created to live in the context of the kingdom of God. And so his words and his deeds light us up with hope regarding God's word and will for us. So why uh, then didn't Jesus give us more information about everything? Why didn't Jesus give us more information about everything? How come the dinosaurs aren't ever discussed? You know, uh, Well, here's why. Again, this is my, my thinking. Uh, here's three reasons why I think Jesus didn't give us more information about everything. And, and, and three words, salvation, exploration, and application. Salvation. We already have enough truth revealed in God's word to live fully. Jesus told us enough for us to experience the salvation of God. We lack nothing from what Jesus did or said that we need to know in order to be in a relationship with God. Now you might have all kinds of questions. We all have questions. Gee, when I get to see Jesus someday, I want to ask him this question. But that being said, we have enough content, enough narrative through the parables and the miracles and other teachings that Jesus did, the example of his life, his death, his resurrection, uh, for the gift of salvation. And so exploration then is that he's given us this capacity for discovery within the world he created. And so here's where we fill in a lot of the, 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 the information we still want. Where did dinosaurs come from? Uh, thank God for paleontologists. Uh, thank, thank God for people like Kepler, one of the greatest scientists of all time, who said, I simply want to think God's thoughts after him as he explores the created world, marveling at, at the nature of the universe and the nature of, of human life. So salvation, and then exploration, and finally application. We accumulate more information than we can apply in life. I, I love this fact about a small child, a small child, a two, three-year-old boy or girl. They're on this massive growth curve. I mean, really, from birth on. Uh, through preschool. They're just in this vertical growth curve. And pretty much everything they learn, they're trying to apply. Every word they learn, they use. They're trying to make sentences and paragraphs, tell stories, apply skills. And so there's a one-for-one correspondence practically with uh, what they say and know and do. And so what happens is as we get older, we we learn so much more than we can possibly apply. There's this gap that that opens up. So what I know about the Lord and and, and life with Christ Uh, has actually taken off this way, but my capacity to apply it doesn't keep up. There's a gap there. This is why Paul the Apostle can write to the Romans and say, chapter 7, you know, I don't do what I should do, I do what I shouldn't do. What's going on? Who can fill that gap? Who can close that gap? He says, thanks be to God in our Lord Jesus Christ. So why didn't Jesus give us more information? Well, because salvation provides everything we need to be in relationship with him. He's given us the gift and capacity for exploration to go find out and ask those questions, to explore the, the, the known and unknown world that he created. And then application is that uh, we'll always know more than we can possibly apply. So point two then would be we need more of Jesus' influence in our life than we need more information. We need more familiarity 
relationally with Jesus, then we need more information about Jesus. More information about Jesus won't necessarily make it possible for us to know Him in our hearts, in our lives any better. We know enough in what He's revealed to us in the Scriptures. So He wants to write a better story in you as you make it a priority to listen to Him, to learn from Him. Not again as to in, in accumulating more knowledge, but in learning how to apply uh, what He's already taught us in parables and through miracles and through uh, his teaching documented in the Gospels. Now what's the context for this? Well, it goes back uh, to Moses uh, in, in Exodus 31, 18. It says when uh, uh, God had finished speaking with Moses upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, right, the, the, the Ten Commandments, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. I love that phrase, written by the finger of God. God is personally instructing Moses so he can instruct the people about God's word and God's will. And then that gets carried forward. Later, years later, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 says this, uh, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, two halves of the same country, uh, called together Israel but divided into the north, uh, Israel and the south, Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah, Galilee is in Israel. Together they're one nation. But they were divided at this point. And so he says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. That was the passage I just read previously about Moses on the mountain receiving the word from God written by God's finger. Because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So God continues writing, but instead of writing it on tablets of stone, he's writing his word on the hearts and minds of people. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. We'll all have full access to him through his word and through his spirit. From the least of them to the greatest. This is the beauty then of being in a conversation with a small child uh, talking about the Lord and reading say, a, ch- a ch- children's Bible with them. And they stop and say, Mommy, Daddy, Grandpa, Grandma, what about this? What about that? Isn't it neat how God does this? I love how God did that. And all of a sudden it's ministering to you. And you're having now a Bible study with a five-year-old or a six-year-old, a four-year-old. From the least to the greatest, we'll have full access to him, to know him, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This salvation, this transformation is delivered through the word in the power of the spirit in the context of this community of God's people. And then finally, the writer of Hebrews, now in the New Testament era, making sense of this for both Jew and Gentile believers, says it this way. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He's broken the power of sin and death through his death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and he will return again in glory. And we're in that in-between time. The now of his kingdom, but the not yet fully realized experience of his kingdom. That's what the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So the writer of Hebrews is capturing for us and recapitulating for us uh, Jeremiah's message as well as the message we see in Exodus. So we need more of Jesus' influence in our life, not just more information. And through those parables that he told, those miracles he did, we have access and an understanding of the scope of the message. So the third point would be this. The more you internalize God's word, the more his word will shape your life. Now reading God's word can just widen that gap. I I know way more than I, I can apply. But it's not just reading the word as information. It's processing the word as something that forms us and transforms us. It shapes the way we think. It it aligns us with God's purposes for us. It tells us what it means to be fully human and fully alive. It clarifies for us what is evil and what is good, what is right and what is wrong. It reveals to us all the capacities we have and the gifts God has given us to thrive and flourish and grow in his love and his grace, to bless him and honor him, even as we bless and honor one another in his name. So the more you internalize God's word, the more his word will shape your life. And that's why if you read it when you're 5 and then 15 and 25 and 30, as you continue to read the Word of God, cycling through His Word, Old and New Testament, He speaks to you at the various ages and stages of your life. It's the same story in context, but we, we experience it in different ways at different times in our life. And, you, and, and so we get a deeper understanding and capacity to experience God's Word. That's why the more we internalize it, the more it shapes our life. It becomes a portable library within us through which the Holy Spirit does His work. And so He teaches us and gives us these aha moments of insight inspired by His Word. And as we internalize that Word, we have a story of hope to share with other people. We get to articulate the hope we have in Christ because we get to then borrow the language from parables and the teachings of Jesus, and the Psalms and the Proverbs, and say, here's why I believe, here's what I believe, here's the meaning and the difference it makes to me. And this is made possible by His Holy Spirit, shaping our hearts and our minds. God personally involved in this process of allowing us full access and teaching us to apply, that is to really obey, listen, and respond to His Word. The Bible teaches us that the Spirit sensitizes us to our sin, makes our conscience more tender, uh, confirms truth, comforts us, empowers us, and helps us to understand God's Word and wisely apply it. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit with us. The Holy Spirit is not an amorphous nothingness. The Holy Spirit is God's abiding presence with us, drawing us close and guiding us through life, instructing us inspiring us, correcting us, empowering us with His Word. And of course, this happens in appropriate solitude and appropriate community. Appropriate meaning uh, we need time alone, we need time together. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor uh, who sadly, uh, one of the last things Hitler did before he died was to be sure that Bonhoeffer was executed. Bonhoeffer was a German pastor who was very outspoken about the evil of Nazism. And Bonhoeffer had been the center of a community, bringing people together to be a community in Christ during those very dark days in Germans, Germany's history. And out of that came a book called Life Together. And in this book called Life Together, he says, you know, this is not an, a utopian effort 
to make a perfect person, a perfect community, a perfect church, a perfect world. It's us coming into the presence of Christ together to learn how to be the people he wants us to be. And to do that properly, we need time alone and we need time together. Now, he's pulling this right out of scripture. We need time alone with God. Some, some people call it quiet time. It's time to read the word and to pray and to reflect and meditate on God's word, his, his presence in your life. Some people journal. And then we need time together to process. If you're, if you're an introvert, you love solitude. If you're an extrovert, you love uh, being with people. We need them both. The introvert needs the discipline of community, and the extrovert absolutely needs the discipline of solitude. That's what I mean by appropriate solitude and community. Time alone and time together. Uh, You read and reflect on a parable in solitude, then discuss it with another person. Uh, You could read and discuss one parable per week with your life group or with your family or with another friend. The idea being that you're taking it in, you're processing it, reflecting on it, praying over it, and then you come into a community and it says you, you test it out in community. Not to argue your point, to one-up each other. Well, the parable really means this, not that. But to say, what, what meaning did you get out of this? What is God saying in this? And what, what does that mean for us? Individually and then as a community. Do you see the power of this? God's word flourishing in you and through you and helping you flourish because other people are speaking it into you, even as you're speaking it into them. Not controlling or manipulating or exploiting one another, but encouraging one another uh, by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And so you can have thoughts and insights and questions and conversation and community. That's why Jesus' parables are still relevant. They provoke us to think deeply about things that matter. <laughs> like you. You matter. Your family matters. Your work matters. Your questions matter. Your, your conundrums uh, and conflicts matter. He's doing a work in you and a work through you, not only to bless you, to, but to help you be a blessing uh, in his name. Uh, by the way, uh, in this week's Read, Think, Pray, if you're on our list, you'll, uh, mailing list, you'll get the weekly Read, Think, Pray. Uh, that's not a mini version of the sermon. That's a, a prep for the sermon. That's to front load some content to help you be ready for the sermon. And in this week's Read, Think, Pray, if you're, if you're not getting it, sign up uh, online, you'll get it. Uh, but if you are getting it, take time to read it. Uh, you'll read some scripture, you'll think about it, and then you'll, you'll be able to pray about what you read and how you thought. And so uh, in that, uh, for this week, I, I included a chart of all 46 of these parables. And so that gives you a chance to see, uh, so on this column, these are all the parables in Matthew. Uh, or this is what the name of the parable is. Here's what it looks like in Matthew. Uh, there might be one just like it in Luke or uh, Mark, and he might have his own. Uh, and then Luke would have some unique to him, but also some of the same that Mark and Matthew cite. All right, so um, go ahead and take a look at that. That'll help you organize maybe how you approach reading the parables. So read them, reflect on them, discuss them, share them, apply them. This is God's gift to you. This is God's gift to his church. And this is God's gift to the community through the church as we are being transformed in our knowledge and love of God. It makes us that much more ready and eager to Uh, be a transforming influence in our culture as we know and love people in Jesus' name. So Lord Jesus, this is my prayer for me, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for family and friends, that we would be so alive in you uh, that we would be uh, an influence in your name. 
not talking people in or out of things, but talking with them about things that are transformational. Your word. Introducing them to you. Helping them understand how to walk with you in your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, this is the beautiful thing you've given us for which we give you great honor and glory and praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Well, I hope you have a great rest of the day. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That is, may he reflect his glory on you that you might reflect it to others in his name, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.